Good morning. The word today is from Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 24 through chapter 3, verse 11. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sion the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand, and as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession, that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jehaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, As far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to the battle at Adrei. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sion, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. 
but all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Selica and Adre, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we ask you now for the ability to see what you see, to hear your voice speaking clearly to us. Pour out grace on the young men and women who are back in that King's Kids hallway, hearing your word right now through their teachers. Give us grace as we sit under your word in this room. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and give us a heart to not only be hearers of your word, but faithful doers for your glory. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I think one of the most rewarding aspects of reading history, which many of you know I enjoy reading, um, is learning just how close the world came to experiencing a very different outcome. You know what I'm talking about? So what if the British had won the Battle of Saratoga in 1777? Or, Or what if Lee had swept the field at Gettysburg? In 1863? What what if the Japanese had won the Battle of Midway in 1942? Or the Third Reich had prevailed at Stalingrad in 1943? Uh, what, What if cooler heads had not prevailed during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962? Just insert your own experience. Of, of narrowly averting some kind of disaster. I bring that up because I think narrative tension is part of what makes for a good story. We, we love the, the back and forth drama, right? That the hero who, who ekes out a victory in the nick of time, you know, will, will Gandalf prevail or will Sauron triumph? We love the tension that the same goes for a good sports game. Right? Shout out to all of you who are like, I lost you. You lost me at history, Matthew. Well, it's the same thing with sports, right? Unless your favorite team is winning, who likes to watch a blowout? That's when we fall asleep. To, to live in this world, even if you're the president of the United States, is to be confronted with all manner of natural and personal forces that are outside your control. It's part of our weakness as creatures. Even even if we plan for every conceivable contingency, we we still cannot guarantee outcomes, right? 
Your, your banker cannot guarantee, ultimately, a specific return from the stock market. The, the best baseball team cannot guarantee a trophy. The best general cannot guarantee a victory. Why not? Because we're frail, right? In case you didn't know this, you're finite. <laughs> you're not God. We're human. Not so our great creator, brothers and sisters. He knows the end from the beginning. Not, not because he has some kind of supernatural ability to, to peer down the quarter of time and see what we have sovereignly decided to do. But because from eternity past, he has been conforming everything in this universe to the perfection of his sovereign will. In other words, God doesn't take chances. He doesn't have backup plans. He doesn't deal with contingencies. He's he's not sitting on the edge of his seat wondering what will happen next in history. He does all that he pleases because he always wins his battles. Can, Can you imagine that kind of existence? And here's the amazing thing about all that, okay? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, here's where we're going this morning, that God invites you to share in his victory. Revelation 12, 10 through 11, Apostle John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers, Satan himself, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God and they, the people of God, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb, Jesus, and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. They've conquered him, John says. What is this word of our testimony? What's the the profession of faith in the promises of God? What what does it mean to, to love our lives, not love our lives even unto death? To obey the Lord no matter the cost. So what is John saying? If, if you're willing to trust the promises of the God who always wins his battles and you're willing to express your trust in the promises of God by obeying the God who always wins his battles, then rest assured, you will share in Christ's victory over every evil power. And Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or pick your enemy that is arrayed against your soul, Christian. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's no eking out victory. 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's what Israel forgot in Deuteronomy 1. Remember? They, they came close the first time to the promised land, and what did they do? Enemies, cities, big cities. I'm out of here. <laughs> right? They didn't believe the Lord. And, and so Moses is exhorting her in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, some 40 years later, to remember something really, really important. Something they forgot back then. What's that? That victory is assured if you trust and obey the God who always wins his battles. That, that's the point of this whole section. Victory is assured. It's not, it's not just possible. It's not just likely. It's assured if you're willing to trust and obey the God who always wins his battles. That, that's Israel's experience in this passage, and it can be yours too, friend. That's the point. So here's what we need to know. First, God accomplishes his sovereign will through our obedience. He accomplishes his sovereign will through our obedience. So I mentioned earlier, chapter 2, when Israel drew near to the land of, of Edom, and then Moab, and then Ammon, the Lord said not once but three times, I will not give you any of their land. Right? But that pattern, I will not, I will not, I will not, is suddenly broken in chapter 2, verse 24. Look there. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. You realize, I hope, that when God says no to something, it's always because he's saying yes to something else. You ever thought about that? He, he's not a cosmic killjoy. We can think of him that way. We, we can think, I, you know, I figured this guy out. He just gets a high out of denying people things. Don't speak like that. Don't spend time with those people. Don't watch that movie. Don't have sex before marriage. Okay, just, just don't. Just wear a shirt that says, don't do it. Friend, he says no to certain things because he wants you to experience the joy of better things. This land is not for you, Israel. Why not? Well, because this land is. He's the God who delights to give, isn't he? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Don't, don't begrudge his prohibitions, my friends. Rejoice in his provision. Greatest of all the joy of knowing and serving him. And in, in Israel's case, pay attention to this. How did God purpose to provide the land of Sihon of the Amorites? Look at verse 24. Begin to take possession Here's how God's providing it. Israel, command, begin to take possession and contend with him, fight with him in battle. If you read through the verse carefully, there, there are actually no less than six imperatives or commands in verse 24. Rise up, set out, go over, begin, take possession, contend. There, there's some serious human responsibility and obedience in view here. But notice what, what anchors 
those commands? What, what, what enables them? What ensures Israel's labor, military labor, will not be in vain? It's the sovereign hand of God. Look at verse 24. I have given Sihon into your hand, isn't it? Look at verse 25. I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples. Again, notice God is doing immeasurably more than just acting based on foreknowledge of how other peoples and other nations will respond to Israel. What's he doing? To the contrary, he's, he's sovereignly determining the way they will respond by controlling their interpretations, directing their emotions. He, he's taking away their courage to fight, isn't he? Israel isn't doing any of those things. God is, because his sovereign power knows no bounds. And it was that promise, that sovereign power that gave Israel courage to contend with Sihon in battle. Why? Because they could be confident God would grant them the victory. Think about that, that the sovereignty of God in scripture is is never this excuse for disobedience. Fine, if you're sovereign, well then, I'll just do whatever I want to do. (laughs) No, the sovereignty of God in scripture over and over again, it's the life-giving, hope-sustaining motivation for obedience. What, What emboldens us? Think of it this way, Christian. What emboldens you? What gives you courage to persevere in the battle against sin? Which should be the promise that God will complete his work of transforming us into the image of Christ? Or what what sustains us in the sorrow of speaking truth to children who want nothing to do with it? Well, it's the promise that God's word will not return void. Or what what will strengthen you to keep living with chronic illness? Or a difficult grouchy spouse the promise that the tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the day of Jesus Christ to to say I have given Sion into your hand is to assert the priority of divine sovereignty and to say begin to take possession is to insist on the means of human responsibility. Both are in play. And such has always been God's way, brothers and sisters. He he accomplishes his sovereign will. This is the point, right? How does he get his sovereign will done? Through our obedience. Indeed, it's the knowledge of his sovereign will revealed in the pages of God's word that, that strengthens and compels our obedience. Remember that. Second, Our victories are ultimately the Lord's work. Think about this. Look at verse 26. You know, at first glance, I certainly experienced this this week, studying this passage. It it looks like Moses' actions here, maybe you caught this when Suzanne was reading, are, are the opposite of what God told Israel to do. You know? So, She's supposed to contend with Sihon in battle. There's nothing particularly peaceable about contending. 
But what does Moses do? He sends messengers with words of peace. What's up with that? Well, that, that's standard, think about it this way, that's standard diplomatic rhetoric, okay? In keeping with, with the laws for warfare that the Lord actually spells out for Israel in Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 12, listen to this because it may be a long time till we get to this passage. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. So these terms of peace were not just, hey, we're not going to fight with you under any circumstances. No, it was a message to Sihon saying, you will submit to us on these terms or else. And he refused. Look at verse 30. Moses gives us the reason. But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate or stubborn that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. You, you realize that's the exact same expression of God's judgment, hardening his heart, that the Lord poured out against Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Exodus. God hardened Sion's heart, ensuring he would be destroyed. How could he do that? Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. To which I can almost hear the objection, how is that fair? You know what I mean? How, how is that fair? Doesn't God owe Sion and his people an opportunity to submit to Israel's terms and live? I'll put it as simply as I can, friend. He owes nothing of the sort. He doesn't. Any more than he owes sinners like you and me an, an opportunity to repent and escape the coming day of God's judgment. He doesn't owe sigh on that. He doesn't owe you that. We, we don't... Deserve. No, no one deserves God's grace. Think about that. What is grace by definition? It's God giving us what, do we, what we don't deserve, right? Anybody who says, I deserve the grace of God, knows neither God nor what grace is. We deserve for God to harden our hearts. In response to our willful rejection of his authority. Think of it this way. Hardening Sion's heart doesn't undermine God's justice. It reveals God's justice. It displays his justice. It, it confirms just how committed God is to dealing with injustice. That is what? Our rebellion against his authority. It's interesting in Genesis 15. 
the Lord affirms his promise to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. But, but he first says, Abraham, listen up. They're going to spend 400 years in a land that is not their own, Egypt, before they get back here. And in verse 16, Genesis 15, he gives Abraham the reason. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why is it going to take so long, Lord? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What what were the Amorites doing during the 400 years the people of God were suffering in Egypt? They were filling up the measure of their sins until things reached a point where God finally said, enough. And the destruction, look at verse 34, chapter 2, of Sihon and all his people, men, women, children, light of that promise from the Lord was not some outrageous act of genocide on the part of Israel. It was a divinely ordained judgment against the Amorites in response to centuries of iniquity. God will not tolerate unrepentant sin forever. That's the point. And he hasn't changed, friend. He's the same God today. And a day is coming when he will hold the entire world accountable, not just the Amorites. So what's the message? What's the warning? Do not presume upon the mercy and forbearance of God. Don't assume that. Today is a day of salvation. Tomorrow may not be. And so that means today, friend, you you need to what? You need to repent of your sins, embrace the Savior who received in his body the death that you deserve so you could be forgiven, and hold fast to Jesus as your greatest treasure. Do that today. Because only he can make you right with God. This promised land where Israel destroyed the Ammonites represents the place where God dwells. And what do we know about God's dwelling place? That an unholy people cannot dwell in God's holy place, right? It's why those who who were not part of God's holy people, the Amorites included, were destroyed. They, They couldn't remain. And think about this. It's also why Israel, centuries later, after years and years and years of refusing to trust and obey the Lord, God said, you can't remain either. He doesn't play favorites, in other words. When she refused to walk the path of righteousness, she couldn't remain any more than the Amorites. And so, friend, if if you are right now refusing to trust and obey the Lord. Well, then for you, Sion's death is a warning, a a summons to flee to Christ for salvation. But even if you are fleeing to Christ for salvation, and, and notice I put that in the present tense. I didn't ask, did you have a moment when you were five years old where you signed a card? Right now, if you are trusting Christ and obeying Christ for salvation, this 
story, this history, still has something to say to you. What's that? That whatever measure of spiritual victory or physical success, Christian, you experience in this life, know this, every victory, every success, including that daily decision you're making to turn away from sin and trust and obey Jesus is ultimately the Lord's work. That's not your work, ultimately. Look, Look at verse 32. This is so important. So important. Our victories are ultimately the Lord's work. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz, and the Lord our God gave him over to us. And we defeated him and his sons and all his people. (laughs) Did, Did Israel have to work for that? Yes. Active verbs, they defeated him and his sons and all his people. Yes, but but what is the emphasis? What's front-loaded in verse 32? The emphasis is on what the Lord, Yahweh, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is doing. God gave Sion over, right? God hardened his heart. God enabled Israel to defeat him. It wasn't ultimately Israel's battle. It was God's battle. Her victory was the result of his work. But even as I say that, part of me wants to know, okay, so Moses, tell me, exactly what strategy did you use to defeat Sion? Can you just give me like the director's cut, behind the scenes look here? What what technique did you employ? What steps did you follow? What What formula did you embrace? Pastor, tell me exactly what the saints who've gone before me have done to to conquer the monster of pornography. Slay the dragon of greed or, or lead their prodigal children home to God. Give me a formula. Give me the exact steps I need. Give me a a new book. Show me what I have to do to to secure the spiritual victory I long to know. Well, I have two things to say back to that, friend. And I have heard comments like that as a pastor over and over again. Two things to say. First, God generously provides the guidance we need for every spiritual battle in the pages of his word. Period. Okay? Scripture, every spiritual battle, is entirely and gloriously sufficient. It's not lacking anything. It doesn't need augmented or added to. So, So can we benefit in our spiritual struggles from the insights of modern psychology? Absolutely. Absolutely, okay? But know this, they can never and will never change the human heart. Ever. Only God can. And he does it through the power of his word. The the word searches, the word convicts, the word opens, the word reveals, the, the word holds forth the splendor and beauty of Jesus Christ and causes dull dead hearts to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Second, 
when you're tempted to demand a formula, (laughs) remember our greatest need in every spiritual battle is the faith that believes the battle is the Lord's and that the Lord wins all his battles. I'll say that again. In every spiritual battle you're facing, your greatest single need is the faith that believes the battle is the Lord's and that the Lord always wins his battles. Said differently, experiencing spiritual victory in any area of your life always begins with remembering the promises of God. Israel's victory is a great example. Notice how he graciously repeats in verse 31 the very same promise that he gave to Moses and Israel back in verse 24. Same promise. Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. What what is the Lord summoning Israel to? A heart of faith. A heart of trust. And, And having remembered God's promises and believed God's promises, what do we do then? Well, then we rest in the assurance that the battle is the Lord's. So so instead of anxious striving or fretful worrying, we, we what? We express our trust in the Lord by obeying the Lord. Every spiritual battle, by what? How do we obey the Lord in every spiritual battle? By doing the simple things he has called us to do, commanded us to do. What's that? Meditate on his word. Spend time in prayer. Pursue community with his people. Share the Lord's Supper. Sit under biblical preaching. Oh, but but Matthew, I've tried all those things and they didn't work. Friend, do you think God made a mistake when he ordained Those means to be how he delivers and rescues your soul again and again and again. Could it be, friend, that perhaps the problem is not that God's means are not working, but that your heart is impatient, that you're not willing to wait? that you're not willing to keep trusting and keep obeying and keep waiting and keep depending until God does what only God can do. I'll give you an example. Say a married couple comes to you, not that this would ever happen, with with a history of poor communication. Might they benefit from a, from a list of practical ideas for connecting with their spouse. Could that be helpful? Yes, thank you, Josh. Absolutely, okay? We're, we're not against practical ideas. It's not like Jesus or practical suggestions. No, <laughs> no. But, but what's the deeper issue? If they come to you, what's the deeper issue? What, what should you just assume is the deeper issue? They'll prove otherwise. It's probably not a lack of information or an ignorance 
of practical strategies, most likely it's a lack of faith. That the difficulty of believing that after all these years, that God is still at work, that God hasn't abandoned their marriage. And because he hasn't abandoned them, they can work on their communication with the confidence that God is fighting for their relationship and his power will prevail in their relationship. That's the biggest issue. And when our trust in, in any spiritual battle, that's just an illustration, but when, but when our trust, our faith is in the right place, in the power of God, then think of it this way. I've seen this over and over again. All the necessary acts of obedience, the the human means God uses to bring his sovereign will to pass, when our faith is in the right place, all those things, they just have a strange way of working themselves out. (laughs) Not that they're unimportant, but they they get legs, as it were. They're given life. They're animated. They, They begin to bear fruit when our faith is in the right place. That's the struggle. That's the battle. Not not because our faith is some kind of magic formula, but because it's the lifeline that connects us to the God who saves. Think of it this way. Faith is the channel through which we receive and experience his power in our lives. And so Paul says in Ephesians 6, 16, in a classic passage on spiritual warfare, in all circumstances, take up the shield of what? Of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So what did God tell Israel? Trust me, guys. I've given Sion into your hand. What what does he tell us, Christian? Trust me. I've given all things into Jesus' hands. Ephesians 1.22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And given that, what what do we know is true for all who are united to Jesus Christ by faith? Ephesians 2 verse 6, he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What, what does it mean? Think, think about that. What does it mean to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places? That, that can just sound like religious jargon. I feel very seated here. What, how in the world am I seated up there? I can't be seated in two places at once. <laughs> Well, here's what that means in a spiritual sense. Right now, in this very moment, Christian, you share in Jesus' spiritual victory over every evil power in the entire universe. Right now. Yes, you have to learn how to live in the good of that victory, but but listen, you don't walk onto the battlefield this week as an underdog in the fight. You enter the arena, as it were, eternally and irrevocably bound to a king who is already conquered through his death and resurrection. A king who walked out of a tomb under his own power, presuming even death itself couldn't hold him down. And having won that decisive battle in the gospel, 
What, what is that king? What does our king promise to fearful saints prone to discouragement, liable to condemnation. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise, Christian. 1 Thessalonians 5.24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And then what does Paul say? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I could have, we could spend all day looking at stuff like that in God's word. Why? Because he wants us to remember and not forget something. Our victories are ultimately the Lord's work. Let let that humble you, friend. Let that encourage you. It's not an excuse for passivity in the battle. It's an assurance that your labor is never in vain. It'll keep you going in the fight. Here's the third lesson. No enemy is too great for the Lord our God. And let me encourage you, as, as, even as I say that, the longer you've been a Christian, the easier it is to hear someone say something and in your mind go, I know that. I've known that for 30 years. So as we move through this point, (laughs) might I simply suggest that if you just did that when I said that, (laughs) as I'm tempted to do, that you with me together, let's recognize we are so prone to forget the most important things. And to say we know them in our head But in our heart, we're not actually believing that. We're not trusting that. So let's approach this point humbly. No enemy is too great for the Lord our God. After the victory over Sihon, you've got another bad dude, arguably an even badder dude, King Og of Bashan with all his people. Even that name is kind of menacing, right? King Og. And he attacks Israel at Andre. It's a new threat. Deuteronomy doesn't tell us if Moses saw it coming, but but here's what it does tell us. With the arrival of a new threat came the arrival of the word of God. Isn't that encouraging? He does the same for us today. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hands. And you shall do for him as you did to Sion. Notice in that two aspects of the way the Lord cares for his people. First, he cares for us. He knows our fears. Did you see that? God knew Moses and Israel had reasons to fear Og. I mean, verse 11 tells us he, he was a formidable guy. The, the last remaining descendant of a, of a race of giants known as the Rephaim. And we don't have an exact height or weight, but we do know the guy's bed was 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. So you fill in the blanks. All right? In other words, why, why is that detail in there? Why, why would Moses say, and by the way, that bed is in Rabbah of the Ammonites? 
to remind Israel and us, he's not kidding. Like this isn't just some, hey, let's make up a fairy tale where there's a bad dude named Og, you know? And that's for real. Israel, go, I don't know how long it took him to get there, but, but go check out the bed, right? I love that. It's so comforting that, that God is intimately familiar with the things that tempt us to fear. He's not comforting Moses or Israel from a position of blissful ignorance here. He knew Og. And and the words of comfort that he spoke were as specific as their fears. He does the same thing through his word today, friend. Read the book of Psalms, okay? They're, They're brutally honest about all the external and internal things that we fear been confronting this life, and they are just as honest about the better reasons we have to trust the Lord. What does all that say? When when the Lord says, do not fear him, he's reminding Israel and us, God knows exactly what we're tempted to fear. It's not like we see something that God doesn't, that if God knew, he too would be afraid. (laughs) He knows. He's intimately familiar. And he addresses them head on. Second, he knows our fears. Second, when fears arise in our life, our greatest need, here we go again, is to remember who God is and what he's promised to accomplish in our life. It's your greatest need when fears arise. Do not fear him, the Lord said, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. That's a loud statement about who God is and what he's promised to do in Israel's life. So question for you, friend, when you're afraid of anything, what do you feel like you need the most? Be honest. What do you feel like you need the most? Do you need that person to change their mind or alter their actions? Do you need that contract or that bid to get accepted? Do you need more money in the bank? Or, or, or here we go, how about a vacation, two weeks at least, to, to forget all your worries? No. What do you need? You need to see something that is just as real as your fears. You need to see the character and the ways of Almighty God. That's what you need to see. They, There is an I that confronts all of our deepest anxieties, brothers and sisters. That the I that is the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Therein lies the comfort that we need. Do not fear for I. Therein lies the perspective we need. Do not fear for I. Therein lies the assurance that we're never alone in our little corner of the universe. Israel, do not fear for I. I am God. I am present. I am working. That This enemy that you are sorely tempted to fear is doing nothing but accomplishing all of my sovereign purposes. Do not fear for I. The victory had yet to go down, right? Was Og dead yet? No. But as far as God is concerned, it's a done deal. Why? Because he's resolved in the perfect sovereignty of his will to bring that outcome to pass. Friends, so much of our life is just spent 
like the stock market as it would, just up and down and up and down in faith, depending on what God has done for us lately. You know? What's he summoning Israel to do here? Israel, enough with the what has he done lately? I have made you a promise, Israel. May that be enough for you. Because the one who makes it is not like you. He upholds all things. The perfection of his sovereign will. Given what I've purposed, Israel, don't fear. Given what I've promised, don't fear. Given what I'm about to do, don't fear. And what do you know? (laughs) It went down exactly the way God said it would go down. Look at verse 3. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. You, You realize these are not just idle stories, friends. Oh, yeah, I heard the one about Sihon and Og. It's pretty good. No. This, this isn't just mere history. This is history that testifies to the faithfulness of the God who saves. Not once, but over and over and over again. When God says something, this is what this story shouts. When God promises something, you can take that to the bank. You can cash the check. He doesn't bounce checks, nor does he traffic in partial victories. Notice that. He wins his battles and he does so decisively and completely. Look at verse four. And we took all the cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. 60 cities. I mean, could you just hear Moses erupting with wonder at the goodness of God? The whole region of Argob. The whole region. There wasn't a city left, Israel. Well, what a foreshadowing, friend. What a foreshadowing of the battles Israel would soon wage in Canaan on the other side of the Jordan. And what a foreshadowing of of the fullness of victory Christ has won for us at the cross. Colossians 2.13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so I say again to you, Christian, every enemy you will ever encounter in this life, physical or spiritual, has already been given into Christ Jesus' hands. No less than the Lord gave Og into Israel's hands. And check this out. We have something far better to look at to remind us of that victory than an iron bed. You know what we have? We have an empty tomb. And there are times in this world where the enemies of the world Sinful nature, Satan, all his demonicos, they they look so intimidating. I mean, look at verse 5. It tells us that Og 
All the cities were fortified with high walls, gates, bars. Yeah, to which you think, well, I like blowing those things up in my video game. Well, put yourself back in Deuteronomy, guy, okay? What was Israel afraid of back in chapter 1? Verse 28, the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. In my experience, besetting sin can feel like that, right? Fortified with bars. Co-workers that, that just seem to have it out for you can feel like that. High walls. Family members who refuse to listen can feel like that. Impenetrable gates. And all of that is no match for the power of God in the gospel. The good news of Christ's victory over sin and death at the cross. Do, do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Or, or have you assigned a, a determinative power in your life to that person or thing that you are afraid of instead of recognizing that determinative power belongs to my God alone? We'll end with this. Remember that under the new covenant, we're not fighting against the physical people for a physical land like Israel. Our our struggle is not against flesh and blood. As Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, it's against the spiritual forces of evil, the world, the flesh, the devil. And And we wage war, we march forward by what? By proclaiming and holding fast to the truth of the gospel. Taking ground from the kingdom of darkness as lost sinners are brought home to God. And so here's the key question, Christian. Given God has promised you innumerable victories from this day until the day you see him, innumerable victories that are all the, the result, the overflow of the decisive victory he won at the cross. Given he's promised that to you, will you trust him? Will you believe his promises? And are you willing to express your trust by obeying his word? Because spiritual victories are not automatic. They're the reward of obedient faith. A faith that rests in God's power to deliver us, not not our power to deliver ourselves. Why? Because no enemy is too great for the Lord our God. Sion and Og have a lot to teach us. God accomplishes his sovereign will through our obedience. Our victories are ultimately the Lord's work. And no enemy is too great for the Lord our God. I I love how Daniel Block summarizes this whole passage. Hear these words. This account shows that there is no limit to what God is able to do for and through his people if they trust him. Isn't that good news? There's no limit to what God is able to do through you and for you if you're willing to trust him. Let's pray and do that together, friends.
Lord, we are grateful that victory is assured for those who are willing to trust and obey you, the God who always wins your battles. Lord, help us to do that. Strengthen our faith even as we sing now this final song, that we would be a people who fight for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord because we have our hope fixed on God, our Savior. Thank you that we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling because we know you, our conquering King, are at work within us. Strengthen our faith, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.